So, you know how in the previous episode we said, oh, don't worry, we still have like two or three episodes left to record before (laughs) um, we're separate. That um, was a lie. It definitely was a lie because um, we're separate right now. I'm in Dallas. And I'm in Austin. And um, I mean, I will take a picture of my setup. Brittany's setup's very nice. Currently, <laughs> I tried. I tried really hard to make. It I look have good. my Mac, my laptop Please in talk front of about me. The sock. <laughs> so, okay, Brittany had the pop filter on the mic, which yeah. makes it to where P's and B's and D's aren't like ah on your eardrums. Yeah, and uh, so she took that when she moved. She got custody. I did. And so it was mine. I. Uh, I'm using a DIY method because I forgot to buy one on Amazon, and it's a sock, and it works well. <laughs> it works but, well, um, and so, it looks so good in our FaceTime. We're FaceTiming. This yeah, is we're a FaceTiming. setup, guys. I have, so my setup, my mic is in front of me. Just behind it is my laptop with my phone resting on it against the screen, and that is sitting on a mixing bowl to raise it up so Brittany gets to see me and not just the microphone. Yep. And, um... You know, I'm just saying, honestly, DIY podcast studio. Well, it is. And also, this is just a way to show you guys that if you want to start a podcast and you're not in the same place, you don't have to be. Um, My setup, I've got like the mic in the middle, my computer at my left, and my iPad that I'm FaceTiming Tyler on on my right. And Yeah, my iPad's dead and I don't know where the charger is. It's a pretty good setup, I'm just saying. Like, I'm glad we can actually see each other and react to one another. And it's just, it's helpful. Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely agree. Also, wanted to just like point out the obvious that I sound like death oh uh, hmm, yeah you sound like death right death no you sound <laughs> like death right now and i'm going to tomorrow you because will. whatever bronchitis flu whatever you are just now getting over yeah you gave to me when i helped you move in over the weekend yeah it's true also i'm like always sick in march i don't know what it is i just i'm always sick see i just get violently ill when i move so we just have that in common i guess so i really wish it hadn't happened because i remember i woke up the morning in the move and i was like i'm dying and i texted tyler at like 6 30 and i was like please bring the dayquil because i don't know what else to to do yeah. i need i need something so when i moved from oklahoma to seattle uh, we have a restaurant that <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, was our favorite me and my friends our favorite restaurant and it was a chinese buffet that also <laughs> oh, had sushi no. and we thought it was fine because we'd eaten it multiple times and we also you know they make the sushi in front of you it's not like sitting out there for right days. right so it's fresh um fresh so that in was oklahoma. my last meal no you guys sushi in oklahoma just saying yeah so that was my last meal and at this point I had already sold my bed and everything, so I slept on the floor um, with, like, a pillow and blanket on the floor, and at, like, 1 a.m., granted, I'm leaving at, like, 9 a.m. or something. Yeah. At, like, 1 a.m., I wake up, and I'm violently ill. Like... So bad. Coming out of both ends. Oh, God. And just, like... Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I... Basically, I spent the night curled up in the bathroom. Oh, no. And... I woke up, oh, and, and my you, plan you, was you left to out the finish. Big, you left out like what? the big part where um you were driving to Seattle. This wasn't a flight. This oh yeah, yeah, driving. that's true. I was driving to Seattle, so I had to get up that next morning and drive to Dallas, where we were going to make a pit stop before heading to the the big leg of our journey. That was was Dallas to the Grand Canyon, so Dallas yeah. to Flagstaff, Arizona. 
It's like a 14 hour drive. Whatever. So I spent the night in the bathroom on the floor, uh, crying and dead. And my plan (laughs) was to finish packing that morning. And I had legit, like, tears break down because I was so sick. I couldn't get from, like, the bathroom to the front door. Yeah. Without needing to go back to the bathroom. And I, so I couldn't pack my car. And I was alone. Yeah. And so I called our mom. And then I called my friend who was driving with me, just bawling. And they were like, oh my God. Okay. We'll drive down there and we'll help. Yeah. So they helped packing. And my friend was in, was at the hospital visiting her grandma who oh, had God. a couple days before she'd had a stroke. And she was okay. Like, they got her to the hospital in time. She was all right. But she was like, um, can we drive up to the hospital so I could, like, say bye to everyone and then head to Dallas? And I was like, that's fine. You know, I, I started, I was starting to feel better A little bit better. Yeah. Um, I had, you know, basically everything was out of my system. So I was like, okay, sure. We go to the hospital Every, you know, everything's fine, whatever. Um, she says bye. And we're walking out of the hospital, just outside the waiting room doors. <laughs> and I needed to then change my pants. Oh, no. <laughs> because, yeah. So I literally <laughs> was just like, okay, I'm going to go into the bathroom of the hospital waiting room and just throw away my underwear because I- <laughs> I have to get in the car and drive. My clothes are somewhere. Um, Oh, God. This is horrible. Yeah, and then drove to Dallas. And then the next morning, drove to Arizona. And then from Arizona, Sacramento. Sacramento to Oregon, then Seattle. It was it was a trip that will be unforgettable. Like I loved it, but oh my god, if I don't have to drive that long in that few days yeah. uh, ever again, I'm cool with that. But yeah. anyway, that entire story was there to say that I get violently ill when I move, and now apparently you do too. Um, I wasn't violently ill the way you were, but I definitely felt I mean, like crap. Barry, you were just like coughing and sneezing and mucusy. <laughs> Yeah, I was really mucusy. And I've also got like this like You didn't have food poisoning. I've got like this uh... That's what I deduced. (laughs) Yes. No, your sounds like I had like severe food poisoning from Chinese food buffet sushi. So lesson learned. Uh don't eat buffet sushi right before you uh are gonna drive across the country. Not a good idea. Even if they're making it in front of you, if it's a buffet, maybe just go for like the noodles and rice. Maybe avoid the sushi. If you're in Oklahoma, maybe avoid the sushi. Yeah. No, for, that's fair. Yeah. That's yeah. absolutely fair. Yeah. Um, well, with that... Sorry, y'all, for the TMI story. But. Yeah. With that, I think I'm just going to, like, remind our listeners to check out our Patreon. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know. There is no transition from both ends. well there certainly was when i was trying to move oh god from both ends (laughs) (laughs) anyway you guys we have a patreon um and it's where you can find our amazing murder mini episodes and those come out every other thursday and they range from like 20 minutes to 45 ish um we've got a couple longer ones on there as well also while you are checking out patreon make sure to head over to your podcast listening platform of choice, hit that subscribe button so you are automatically notified whenever we do new episodes. Yes. So um, I think this is going to be a really exciting episode. This is one that I've been wanting to do for a while. Yeah, and this is a 
big episode. It really is. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into the topic. I picked musician murders. And this is one where, unfortunately, there were a fair amount of different options to choose from. Uh, different There's cases definitely to pick. A lot. Um, this is something that you know when when someone in the spotlight is murdered, it's automatically like a huge deal. And mm-hmm. um, I know I definitely went big with this one, and I know you did too. Yeah. So I actually one of our first murder minis. Um, I talked about the murder of Christina Grimmie. She was a singer who found fame on YouTube and uh, then was a contestant, I believe placed third on The Voice. And after a concert in Orlando back in 2016, she was uh, shot and murdered like right there in front of i think she was at like a signing like a autographs and stuff yeah and she was shot by a crazed fan who then shot himself and which that one was heartbreaking because i had found her when she was on youtube because she used to do covers of songs and they were all really good yeah and then when she was on the voice i didn't watch the voice but i was like oh my god that's awesome i was rooting for her because i knew her and after that i mean she had some records and was starting to get big and then was just murdered she was also 18 or 19 she was was so young. young well and one thing that makes it you know definitely really tragic is that a lot of musicians when they're murdered it's because of their fame, like whether yeah. someone felt that they were too big or a crazed fan or something something else, it just unfortunately a lot of the times their fame plays a, a role in their death. And yeah. that's that's really sad because they're doing what they love and it ends up being their demise and not um, – I mean, because I know there's also musicians who are addicted to substances and, you know, yeah. alcohol, and drugs, and, and that can be a big there's part. There's the, the like, 27 Club, yep. like Amy Winehouse, Kurt Cobain. Yep. Uh, Janis Joplin, who most of them wound up destroying themselves. Yeah. Um, and I, I can imagine that just being that famous at such a young age. Can't even imagine it. How do you have a grip on reality when. I don't know if you, you do. don't live in reality. Right, like you, you don't. You, you can't, you know, oh shit, I need this for dinner. I can go to the store and grab it. You can't do that. You can't do that. You can't walk out of your apartment to go get something or to go have drinks with friends because you're going to be sworn. And yep. you also, how do you know who is your friend? How do you know that... You know, this person who is really nice to you isn't there for your fame. Well, and, and I think just... that's I think that's a lot of why celebrities date celebrities because it's oh, someone absolutely. that is going through the same thing that they are, and obviously they're not there for you know to be noticed or whatever because they're already in the spotlight. Like, well, and the other part of it is there's this obsession that we have with not only celebrity culture in general, but with the downfall yeah. of an icon. Yeah. I mean, you, you can look at when Britney Spears was going through some of the toughest times of her life and every action that she did was plastered everywhere. I am definitely someone who is fully understanding and fully supportive 
of Britney Spears and everything that she went through because she started, she became the world's biggest pop star at the age of 15, 16. Gosh, and she was so young. I forget how young that, she was. You know, that's a freshman, sophomore in high school. Yeah. Your life changes. And even before that, she had fame because she was on like the Mickey Mouse Club and shit. Absolutely. And th- so her entire life was revolved around her being this object owned by everyone else you know and so when she had a breakdown yeah she had a breakdown it instantly becomes you know britney spears is crazy she shaved her head she beat up a car with an umbrella and it's like she she can't do anything the the only time she has to herself is i guess if she hides in her room closes all the blinds and sits in the dark you know how can you put that kind of pressure and that wanting someone to break down and wanting someone to fall well we do in the public eye and you know every single time society does it and it's so it's so sad it's just i mean yeah it's something we do and it's tragic because absolutely these people are creating art creating this thing for us to consume that we all enjoy that makes us happy it makes us feel things yeah and because of that worldwide status they have they no longer have a personal life no rihanna is in an abusive relationship and it's the cover that her the photo taken of her after she was beat is plastered across every magazine and every news headline is about her assault and there aren't things you can really keep private no and so which is why it really is it's just absolutely tragic and um unfortunately not that any of our cases are fun to talk about these are going to be uh extra not fun but before we jump into that how about you tell us about the wine what wine did you pick for this topic so the wine i chose today is the 2017 mark west pinot noir and to quote their website mark west was founded in 1978 with one desire only, to craft remarkable Pinot Noir that delivers exceptional quality at an affordable price. With equal parts patience, hard work, and passion, we followed our dream from vineyard to barrel to bottle. So, you know, why that did tells you, you everything Why you did you to start know. to get an accent in the middle of that? You know, because sometimes English is hard. But, um, but also, so t- one thing that's really interesting about Mark West is they only make Pinot Noir. Yeah. Um, thanks for saying that. You're welcome. I mean, it's not like it's in my wine notes or anything. But, um, so the tasting notes for this Pinot, it's a very medium-bodied, which is nice. A lot of Pinot Noirs can be very, very light-bodied. Yeah. And almost have, like, a watery quality to them. This one's very medium-bodied with black cherry, cola, strawberry, plum, and soft tannins. Cola? And this is that is one an of, interesting. Yeah, interesting. cola. Which is so interesting because the flavor cola, I only ever think of it as, like, a soda. Right. But if you separate that flavor from a Coke, it's a fruity flavor. Like it, because I know like Dr. Pepper, for example, is one that uses cola in it, but also uses like plum and and other like heavy dark fruits. Yeah. Uh, Coke is cola flavored and cola is a plant and it's a very fruity. Wait, cola's a plant? Yeah. I thought, oh my God. Okay. Gonna sound silly, but I really thought it was just Coca-Cola. No. 
the the flavor is cola in the same way what? that like Sprite or Seven Up is a lemon lime soda. No way. Coca Cola is a cola soda. What else do they make out um, of cola? I'm pretty sure sodas are the only thing. Oh, um, but it's interesting because I never really think of it as like a flavor. Me either. But it is. Um, but this is one of the most famous and one of the best Pinot Noirs out there. It pairs perfectly with pastas, with light tomato-based sauces, nothing too, too heavy. A, you know, juicy cheeseburgers, grilled salmon. <laughs> Which is super pork. heavy. <laughs> You're I like, mean, a light cheeseburger pasta. is. <laughs> yes, that's what I'm saying. It goes from, like, okay. light pasta to cheeseburger. Listen, okay, every wine <laughs> pairs with cheeseburgers is all I'm saying. Every wine pairs with everything you want. That's true. Um, but it's also one that is just perfect to drink on its own. And um, with that, I'm going to open it. Yes. So I'm really excited to have this because I'm not a huge, huge Pinot Noir person. Have you never had uh, Marquest? I don't think I have. It's a good one. It's different. And I think it's that medium body thing that you mentioned. All right. Well, since I don't have to split this bottle with you, you have your own one. I do. I can finally actually pour a Tyler-sized wine glass. You pour. So get ready to wrong. hear about seven minutes of pouring. No, you pour the worst ones. They're like, he like fills it up all the way to the top, basically. I don't. Okay, it's not to the top. It's just like probably two thirds of the wine glass because I'm lazy. Well, it just means, you know, less times to pour. Exactly. So, um, I just realized, how the hell are we gonna cheers? Oh my god! We can't really cheers. That sucks. We can air cheers, and then I have a spoon next to me, I could make a cheersing sound. That's cheesy. That It is. We'll just air cheers. Alright, one, two, three. Okay. Cheers! Cheers! That was so not satisfying. Okay, so, but I had a thought. What if we took the wine bottle and we just made a cheersing sound <laughs> Let's do it. in our own hands like we're a sad person drinking alone <laughs> on are. their birthday because, you know, it's their birthday and they're in Seattle <laughs> and they just bought themselves a bottle of wine and a cupcake and they're having, you know, singing happy birthday to themselves. Oh my god. Someone's there. The cupcake, and so they that's cheers terrible. To themselves. All right. But, um... They blow out their own candle, and they're like, happy birthday to me. Blow it out. <laughs> and no one is there to clap and cheer. That's so because sad. Because you're alone. But I don't know. I feel like someone had a birthday like that one time. I don't know who. Probably. Anyway, cheers. All right. <laughs> I, yeah. <laughs> I made a little bit of a mess. Hang on a second. I'm proud of you. <laughs> I'm not very good at cheersing alone. Oh. I mean, I feel like you shouldn't be. Well, I'm going to drink it. Okay. Nothing on my new carpet. We're all good. Mm. Yes. That's good. It's it's good. You see what I'm saying? Like it's that it's medium bodied, so it's more like reds we normally drink. Yes. So Charlie's in here sitting next to me. He's like, Mom, what are you doing? Oh, I can see him. Alright. Well, um, I think it's your turn to go first this week. So, um, the case I chose is one that I mean I I had to pick this one. Are you nervous to do it? I'm nervous to do it because I want to do her justice and yeah. because I know how impactful she is. And so the case I'm doing is the murder of the Tejano queen, Selena Quintanilla Perez. Yep. And, um, I mean, Selena is someone who is... Continues to inspire huge. so many people. She is one of, if not the most impactful 
figures in Teano music and still is this icon for millions of Hispanic people in South Texas and Northern Mexico. And other parts of the United States as well. I mean, Selena fans, they go all around the world. Absolutely. Um, So I was fairly familiar with the Selena case before I did a lot of my research. Yeah. But the two big things that I used was actually an interview with my friend Joey Aranda. He grew up in Laredo in South Texas. Oh, yeah. In a Hispanic family and grew up with Selena's music. That's amazing. She was hugely impactful to him and to his family. So I interviewed him. And so my other source was VH1's Behind the Music, Selena. I don't know if I've ever seen that one. So VH1 used to do, for those of y'all that don't know, it used to do Behind the Music, which was like an hour-long documentary where they explored the lives and the rise and fame of these different musicians. Yeah. And they did Selena's After Her Death and it is just, it's really good. Yeah. And I it's believe very it. 90s. Yeah. So I'm going to jump in. Well, and there's also the movie with J-Lo. Yes. Yes, that's true. I have actually never seen uh, the movie Selena with J-Lo. It is really good. I mean, it is what gave J-Lo her start and also what made her decide yeah. she wanted to go into music. And it, I mean, that was, I think that's J-Lo's only Golden Globe nomination. Oh, really? I don't know why I haven't ever seen it. Probably because it came out, I think, in like 1997 or 1998. It and did. I was it came out a couple years small, after her small death. child. Yes, you were. Um, and we also are in a very white family and did not grow up listening to Tejano music. No, and we definitely missed out on that because we that's did, amazing. Because I listen, I listen to it now and I, I only heard, well, actually growing up, I did hear a... Um, Selena's song, I Could Fall In Love With You, but I didn't know it was her until about a year ago. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then I only recently found her music within the past couple years and was like, holy shit, y'all. Amazing. All right, jump into yes. this case. So Selena Quintanilla was born on April 16th, 1971 in Lake Jackson, Texas, which is a town just outside of Houston that has a lot of like factories and refineries, things like that. She was the youngest child of Marcella Ophelia and Abraham Quintanilla. Uh, And Abraham, her dad, was a former Mexican-American musician. And um, this will play a big part because he had quit singing to work at a chemical plant so he could make money for the family. Yeah. Uh, He wasn't making a ton of money as a musician, uh, but he was very talented, and it was his passion. It's what he wanted to do. He hated working at this chemical plant, but it's how he could put food on the table. Um, And he would sing at home after work, and that was really what introduced Selena to music. She would sing along with her dad. He showed her, like, all the stuff he listened to growing up, and she would sing along and was really good. Yeah. So... She's six years old, and her dad is encouraged by just how good she is. She can harmonize and carry these melodies that adults struggle with. So he decided to create a family band with Selena and her siblings, and that was how Selena y los Tinos was born. That's the band's name. That's awesome. So her dad decided to quit his job at the chemical plant, and he opened a restaurant that served uh, Mexican food, and it also had live performances. And this is where Selena y los Tinos would perform, and that's kind of how they got their start 
performing in front of people. So in 1981, when the oil crash hit, Mm -hmm. the restaurant went under and the family moved from Lake Jackson to Corpus Christi, where this band became the family business. Yeah. It went from being a hobby and a passion project to this is how they put food on the table. This is how they're bringing in income. So for six years, the band bounced around South Texas playing at bars, weddings, clubs, just performing where they could to make money so that the family could pay their bills and also kind of grow their children's talent. Yeah, survive. By by the mid-1980s, Selena was growing in age, talent, and beauty, and the band began opening for larger acts, and they actually began recording some songs and albums for a local label. And at this point, the band was not really in the Tejano scene, which Tejano is a fusion genre. It has uh, aspects of country, jazz, uh, sometimes a little bit of reggae, uh, Mexican music that's all fused into this very energetic genre. Yeah. So prior to this, they weren't really performing Tejano music. Um, it, I mean, it, it definitely had aspects in there. But when, you know, they started to get the ball rolling and started to grow in, you know, recording albums and stuff, that was when Selena's dad, Abraham, taught her Spanish. And that was when... She didn't know the band... until then? No. Uh, oh. She and her siblings didn't know Spanish um growing up they spoke english which i mean that's not abnormal for a lot of families that live in america um like generally the the parents know spanish and the kids don't um Mm -hmm. but i i didn't know that they'll know a little bit of spanish but yeah like what's said around the house and stuff english at home and stuff for the most part yeah you're not necessarily going to really pick up on a lot of spanish but abraham wanted to teach selena spanish and um she began to write songs and sing in Spanish. And when she made the shift, or when the band made the shift to Tejano music, that was like the catalyst that exploded them. Because Tejano music, um, at the time, it's a boys club. It is very much populated by male singers and male-driven bands. And here comes this, like, 15-year-old girl fronting this band, and she is good. Yeah. Like, she has that kind of talent that can't be taught. That she just innately knows what to do with the vocal structures of her songs and make them sound beautiful. She has this emotional maturity with her singing that is unmatched by her peers. Her talent so, was just crazy insane. Amazing. It's absolutely insane. And when she... And also, the Hano music is very... Very big in southern Texas and uh, northern Mexico. And in a lot of Mexican-American families, Tejano music is huge. So when they became this Tejano band, they exploded. And in 1987, 15-year-old Selena was named Female Vocalist of the Year at the Tejano Music Awards. Over the next nine years, she would go on to sweep the awards. And probably the most important year for her at them was in 1989, when a record executive, Jose Bajar, was in the audience and he saw her and was like, holy shit, I have to get her 
on my record. Yep. So Jose reached out to Abraham to sign Selena to EMI Latin, uh, this music label. EMI is a huge global recording label. Yeah. And they had just launched EMI Latin and were looking for the next big thing. And they, and they found, found her. her Selena. Yes. So after signing with EMI, Selena took her traditional Tejano sound and she spiced it with her own flair. She was very influenced and loved, like, disco music. Yeah. Some of her concerts, um, you know, she'd begin them with a disco medley, where she would perform things like I Will Survive, and just some of the biggest disco hits. And so when she got signed to this record label, she took the Tejano, and she started fusing it with what she wanted. So this is really when she started to kind of set the stage and lay the foundation for her future impact on music across the globe. So a couple years uh, after creating the band during all this, um, the band decides to hire uh, this guy named Chris Perez, who he was, he wasn't a Tejano musician. He was a guitarist and was a very rock and roll kind of guy. Oh, yeah. Um, But he gelled very well with the band. Personal relationships were really great. Creative relationships were really great. And, you know, he was a perfect match for the band. And Chris and Selena started dating. And Dad was not having this. So Abraham is pissed about this. Oh, yeah. He, He was a very controlling and strict dad so selena and chris dating was not okay and this was also the first time that an outsider had joined the band yeah i mean selena y los tinos had always been the family band right so he wasn't okay with that but they dated anyway because what teen is really going to listen to their dad when he tells them not to date someone i mean no one so by 1990 her popularity was spreading across all of north america and she was seen as a celebrity of the people she would always be willing to sign autographs she would promote charities that kept kids in school and kept them off drugs yeah I mean, she was very involved, and she was able to mingle and create relationships with her fans, both before and after her shows, but also during. Yeah. And it was this, like, magnetic personality that she had that really drew a person to her. So at a concert in San Antonio in 1991, a 31-year-old nurse spotted Selena and was drawn to her. Uh, This is the first time she had ever seen selena in person and was like oh my god that's that's her i love her and this person was yolanda salvidar by the early 90s selena is on top of the latin music charts her breakout song was como la flor and this song really got her the status of as the reigning tejano queen again before her, it was very male-dominated. So to have the song Como La Flor hit the way it did from this beautiful, talented woman was unheard of in this space. Yeah. So it was, like, game-changing for the genre, for Selena, for everyone involved. And also at this time, in April of 1992, was when she married the love of her life, her guitarist, Chris Perez. Yes. And she announced that she was now... Selena Quintanilla Perez. So I love that she like added his last name on there because most 
celebrities don't do that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, to be fair, she was known as Selena. It's like, true. Like, one name. Like, it's true. Madonna or Cher, she was Selena. That is true. And, but still, I totally agree. So back to Yolanda Salvador. Yolanda didn't actually really like Tejano music before she met Selena, but after meeting her and seeing her in concert, she decided to start the Selena fan club, like the official one. So Selena met Yolanda to set up this official fan club, but initially they didn't have a whole lot of contact with her, and it was really only when Selena would play in San Antonio that she and Yolanda would meet up and, like, have contact. Right. So... By 1994, Selena was soaring to new heights that were... I feel like everything she does, she tops it soon after. She is just huge. And in 1994 was when she won her first Grammy for the album Selena Live. Yes. And Selena Live put them on this platform of being the next big thing um after winning this grammy and getting this notoriety from outside of the mexican-american and hispanic culture and just being set up on a national and global stage she wanted to strike while the iron was hot and she'd always wanted to do an english language album yes and after winning this grammy this was when she started writing her english language songs and developed the strategy for what was poised to be her crossover album yeah and this this english language album it was designed to launch selena into being an international pop star like just huge on a global scale yeah during all of this she's also working on her personal dream of being a fashion designer she was always very well known for her amazing fashion uh she wore these bustiers and was just this beautiful woman with this great taste in fashion oh yeah and fashion was always one of her passions i can definitely see that just looking at some of the things she wore like amazing and so she decides to meet up with a couple designers and start creating her own line of clothing and at this point now she's being pulled in two directions her fashion business and her singing stardom and this was where yolanda salvidar started to become a huge part of selena's life so selena was opening her fashion boutiques and she needed someone to run them yeah and there was yolanda yolanda was her trust friend she ran her fan club and she was always there for them so yeah so yolanda was hired to manage selena's retail stores even though she was a nurse and president of her fan club she had zero retail experience yeah but she was the one that they chose so yolanda salvador began to involve herself heavily and she began setting herself up as the only person who was close to selena outside of her family and she would have people go through her to get to selena and not just like fans or other you know distributors people like selena's designers yeah would have to talk to yolanda first before they could talk to selena and she began wow. basically being selena's gatekeeper and just showing that she was obsessed with her definitely so this brings us to january of 1995 and abraham who previously, I mean, Yolanda was basically a part of their family at this point. Yeah. But he started to become suspicious of her. He began to start seeing Yolanda's controlling and, like, her almost evil side. Evil? And, yeah. Oh. Like, and Selena is caught in the middle of this. She is caught in between her friend and her father. Yeah, I didn't realize that's a- this happened. Like, that she had an evil side that was showing. So, so right now, 
Selena's popularity is at insane heights. She is a superstar and she's in the process of like kind of recording and finishing up her English language album. This was when Selena and Yolanda began to travel to Monterrey, Mexico because she wanted to open up a boutique there. Oh, yeah. She had a couple in Texas and she wanted to expand into Monterrey. So in early 1995, Abraham is suspicious of Yolanda and he finds documents that show Yolanda had been embezzling thousands of dollars Damn it, from her fan club so they hadn't really seen they hadn't been able to find evidence if she was stealing from the boutiques and retail store yet but they found very strong evidence uh, that she's embezzling from the fan club and so in early march of 1995 abraham called a meeting and confronted yolanda in front of selena about the embezzlement right and Yolanda is making up all these different excuses, uh, all, just all these different reasons of why these things are showing what they are. And the meeting becomes heated. Both of them are arguing, and Abraham is like, all right, well, I will, I'll just take this to the police. You know, if there's nothing to see here, if what you're saying is true, then they'll find that out. But I think you're embezzling, and, I, and that's what this shows. Yeah. And he told Yolanda that she was no longer welcome. But... Yolanda wasn't fired. Yolanda had told Selena that if she fired her, she wouldn't be able to live any longer. She Whoa. wouldn't be able to continue living. So she if did the whole Selena like broke ties with her. She did the whole if you fire me, I'm killing myself. Yeah. Oh, she did the manipulative like yeah. which side note, if anyone ever tells you something like, "Oh, if you break up with me, I'll kill myself or it'll be your fault and I'll die because I love you." That's not love. No. That is manipulation and obsession. That is, that is abuse to the highest degree yep. and you that you didn't get the fuck out of there yep so one week after this heated argument this meeting where abraham confronted yolanda yolanda salvador bought a handgun oh god and you know ev- everyone is urging selena to fire yolanda yeah. her f- her family so some of her business advisors, they're like, you need to get rid of her. She's not good for your company. Yeah. She's a she's not a good person. But Selena couldn't do it. She was like, I'm not going to do this to my friend. Because she had such a good heart. And like... She had such a good heart and she still... She didn't let herself believe that Yolanda could do this to her. So she's like, I no, know. I'm not firing her. I know. And throughout the month of March, Yolanda began unraveling, and she became very depressed and very erratic. And in the early morning hours of March 31st, 1995, Yolanda asked Selena to meet her in a Days Inn motel room in Corpus Christi. So Selena left for the hotel in the early morning, and when she got there, Yolanda told her that she'd been raped. Oh, God. So Selena takes her friend to the hospital to, you know, get her checked up. And the doctors find no evidence of rape. So Selena and Yolanda return to the motel room. And Selena started realizing that something was very wrong with Yolanda. And that her father and those that were close to her had been right about her all along. She was not a good person. She yeah. was not this close, trusted friend that she thought she was. And they begin arguing. During this argument, Yolanda pulls out the gun she'd bought a couple weeks earlier. And she fires one shot 
that hits Selena in her back and severs oh. an artery. Oh. So Selena runs from the room. There's a trail of blood behind her and she runs into the motel lobby yeah. where she collapses and she's terrified. She's been shot and she's dying. And while she's laying on the floor of this motel lobby, Selena was able to identify Yolanda Salvidar as the person who shot her. Yeah. And those would be her last words. Oh no. I did not know Selena, those were her last words. Selena died from her gunshot wound on March 31st of 1995 at the age of 23. She was so young. She was so young. So Yolanda Salvador after this was in a standoff with police. She was sitting in her truck with the gun to her head. Yeah. She's just threatening to kill herself. Um, And negotiations were taking place and after a while, they did work, and Yolanda was sent to jail, and she was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole. After how long? Uh, she'll be eligible for parole on March 30th of 2025, so in six years oh shit which i don't ever see her getting let out no she would be killed on the spot what yeah for what she did but also for her own safety she would be murdered i mean both yes obviously what she did and her own safety it it is really hard to quantify just how big and the the impact that selena had i mean to this day it's been 25 years and Every year on the anniversary of her birthday and the anniversary of her death, there are just day-long documentaries and interviews and things about her life and about her. And also, like, stores like H-E-B, which is the grocery store here in Texas, and Stripes, which is a gas station, they'll do Selena cups and Selena bags. And people will line up for hours to get a plastic Selena cup or a plastic Selena bag because she has this huge impact. And the only, the closest thing that Joey could describe her, the impact of her death to, was the death of Michael Jackson. Yeah. Like, it, it was that big for her fans and her community. Of course. But it it was different because Selena represented I mean, she was this, you know, this this international superstar from South Texas. Yeah. And the communities there and everyone was able that's that's our girl. And she was so talented and so beloved. I mean, it's been twenty five years. I don't think twenty five years after Michael Jackson's death there will be I mean maybe on the twenty fifth year anniversary there will be things. But well there's not this kind of lasting superstardom. So I will say I agree with you, but not because of his stardom, but because of all of the allegations that have come out recently with that HBO documentary. That's that's true. I mean, but and I, that's something that has plagued his life for so long. And I'm not yeah. gonna I'm not gonna get into that because that's a totally different topic. But because of that, I definitely don't see any type of celebration in the same way. So yeah, kind of hard to make a comparison I mean, yes, only because of I, that. I guess to if you could remove his stardom from that i still don't don't know like i think his music absolutely lasting yeah but the how her death and her music personally affected millions of people yeah 
is something that I have never seen before. And her English well, album was released posthumously yeah. after her death, and it was her first uh, number one on the Billboard charts, or on the Billboard 200, like the English language albums charts. Yeah. It went number one, and uh, yeah, I mean, to this day, she is still this incredible, huge superstar. She is. She absolutely is. Wow. I almost don't even know how I'm going to follow that up, but I will. So that is the story of the life and death of Selena Quintanilla Perez. Such a tragic story. I know. Yeah, pour more and wine because mine is also going to be awful. I know. I um I know who you did and I am I'm excited to learn more because honestly, I know so little yeah. about all of this. So I also picked a really huge gigantic case. Um mm-hmm. I picked the murder of John Lennon. Okay. So the sources I used was um it's source singular Wikipedia but multiple different pages, like the John Lennon page, the Killers page, the Murder page, and also the Beatles page. Literally, Wikipedia, yeah. there was so much. Fair. I actually did not use Wikipedia for mine, which is rare. I go back and forth with using it and not using it, but this one, like, it literally had so much. So, John Lennon was born on October 9th, 1940, and we all know... Obviously, he was an English singer, songwriter, and peace activist, and he gained worldwide fame as the co-founder of the Beatles in 1960. The members of the band were John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr, and they became regarded as the foremost and most influential music band in history. So literally, the Beatles, everywhere, all the time. I mean, like, I have a Beatles tattoo, you know, me and like half the world. Literally. You do? I do. I have Let It Be on my side. I didn't know that was a Beatles thing. Yeah. It's one of their songs, and I got it when I was in London, and I was like, I have to do a Beatles thing. I lived in England, and I had to do it. Fair. So. I um, I don't know that much about the Beatles. I know you I don't. I mean, I know a couple of their songs, but I don't listen to them. Most of their songs are just weird. I love the Beatles, but that weirdness and that experimental aspect they have was huge. And that's part of why they are who they are. I mean, there is no denying they are the biggest and most influential band that has ever been. Yeah. So their music was rooted in skiffle, beat, and 1950s rock and roll. And they were integral to pop music's evolution into an art form and into the development of the counterculture of the 1960s, which is like, again, fucking huge. They often incorporated classical elements, older pop forms, and unconventional recording techniques in very innovative ways. So like like I was saying, um, they were experimenting with different music styles from like pop ballads to Indian music to psychedelia and hard rock. So they're all across the yep. board. And you can tell it when you listen to their discography, how it just changes throughout their time. Um, oh yeah, I mean, they have some some songs it's like ah this is great to like relax at a you know just lay in the grass in the park and then you have some that are like this would be great to do a bunch of acid too and then you have some that yeah. you're like i could just like jam the hell out to this literally all and of it's it it's all there all of it um and there's all don't take a bunch of acid kids no don't do don't it don't do it there is a beatles song for like every emotion 
Like, every mood, every emotion you're feeling, there's a Beatles song that's going to match that. Fair. So by early 1964, Beatlemania had totally set in. This was a worldwide thing. They were international stars. They were leading this so-called British invasion of the United States pop market. And they were breaking numerous sales records just all across the board. However, in 1970, they disbanded and many of them went on their solo careers. Really? Yeah. So they were... Is it bad that I thought... I didn't realize they disbanded before John Lennon's death. I thought his death was what split them up. No, no. They disbanded in the 70s and, like, they stopped getting along as much. And, I mean, you hear, like, the, oh, Yoko Ono split up the Beatles and... Ugh, that's sexist garbage. Yeah, I don't believe any of that. But I do want to go through just, like, talking about how phenomenal they were and what a change they made to the music industry. I just want to list some of the awards that they got. So they are the best-selling band in history with estimated sales of over 800 million records worldwide. Fuck. They are the best-selling music artist in the United States with 178 million certified units. The group was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1988, and all four of the members were inducted individually from 1994 to 2015. They have also had more number one albums on the British charts and sold more singles in the UK than anyone else. Wow. In 2008, the group topped Billboard magazine's list of all-time most successful artists, and as of 2017, they hold the record for most number one hits on the Hot 100 chart with 20. They've received seven Grammy Awards, an Academy Award for Best Original Song Score, and 15 Ivor Novello awards which i don't know what those are well beyonce won like seven grammys in one night so whatever (laughs) they were also collectively included in time magazine's compilation of the 20th century's 100 most influential people so literally so much i will say i am honestly surprised that they had a you know couple decades long career no 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 10 years okay okay decade long career and only won seven grammys well i think A lot of, I don't know, just the craze and and their continued fame is now, like, like since they disbanded and beyond. So John Lennon was married more than once. Um, His first marriage was to a woman named Cynthia, and they had a son. Their son's name was John Charles Julian Lennon, and he was born April 8th, 1963. He was the direct inspiration for three of the Beatles songs, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds in 1967, Hey Jude in 1968, and Goodnight in 1968, which I never knew that Hey Jude was about his son, and it, like, changes the way I listen to it now. So... Of course, one another of um, Lennon's spouses was Yoko Ono, and they met on November 9th, 1966, when Lennon went to the art gallery in London where Yoko was preparing her conceptual art exhibit, and they were introduced by the gallery owner, and Lennon was just very intrigued by what she was doing. Her art project was called Hammer and Nail, and in this project people would go into the gallery and hammer a nail into a wooden board, and this was what was creating the art piece. And so Lennon was seeing this before anyone else and, like, wanted to do it, and she was like, no. But anyway, this is when they met, and things went really well, and he ended up ending his previous marriage, and Yoko and Lennon were married in 1969. So Yoko previously suffered three miscarriages in her attempt to have a child with Lennon, 
but eventually she became pregnant with their son, Sean, which side note, I've absolutely seen Sean when I lived in New York. He was like the only celebrity I ever saw. I was eating lunch at the same cafe he was. And my friend and I were oh. like, that's freaking Sean Lennon. So he still lives in New York, or at least he did back in 2013. Like, um, okay. So initially, Yoko said she wanted to have an abortion, but she changed her mind and agreed to allow like the pregnancy to continue with it on the condition that Lennon adopt the role of house husband. So she was like, no, no, no. If we're going to have this kid, you're staying at home you're taking care of him. And he agreed. And Sean was born on Lennon's 35th birthday in 1975. Okay. So now to the bad part. On December 8th, 1980, the day started out like any other for Lennon. Photographer Annie Leibowitz went to the Lennon's apartment to do a photo shoot for the Rolling Stone. So Lennon and Yoko were... Being in photographs together, and this was Annie Leibowitz, who's, like, a freaking phenomenal photographer. She's, like... Oh, she's amazing. It's, like, your goal is to be photographed by her. Like, she's still yeah. still doing her art. The couple lived at the Dakota, and this was a co-op apartment building that was located on the northwest corner of 72nd Street and Central Park West on the Upper West Side um, in Manhattan. So it's, like, facing the park. It's, like, a gorgeous, gorgeous building. Construction was completed in 1884, so it was older. And Lennon had been living there since 1973, so he'd been there for a while. Yeah. So Leibowitz promised Lennon that the photo of him and Yoko would end up on the front cover of the magazine, even though she was trying to get a photograph of him alone, and he's like, no, my wife's going to be in this photo too. Is this the famous photo where they're like... Laying naked together? Laying naked, yeah. Yes. I, okay, I didn't know that, I assumed that photo had been taken earlier. Nope. It was the day of his death. Wow. So, okay. So Leibowitz left her apartment at about 3.30. And after the photo shoot, Lennon gave an interview to San Francisco DJ Dave Sholin for a music show to be broadcast on the RKO radio network. And then at about 5.40, Lennon and Yoko, they were delayed a little bit by a late limousine, left their apartment to mix the song Walking on Thin Ice at the Record Planet studio. So they literally had mm-hmm. such a full day. Yeah. Yeah. Around, you know, before recording that, when they were walking to the limo, they were approached by Mark David Chapman, who was seeking an autograph. And this was something that was very common. Lennon was used to people waiting outside the Dakota to ask for his autograph. Uh, Chapman silently handed Lennon a copy of Double Fantasy, which was the album that Lennon and Yoko had recently released together. And Lennon yeah. signs it, like, sure, whatever. After he signs it, he says, this is all you want. And... Chapman smiles and he's like, yeah. There was actually a photographer that took a picture of this encounter of the two of them. Mm -hmm. And Chapman had apparently been waiting outside the Dakota since mid-morning. And he'd even approached the Lennon's five-year-old son, Sean, who was with the family nanny earlier that day when, like, they returned home. Um, no. Yeah, no, leave the kid alone. No, no, no. Lennon... Obviously, like, he liked to oblige. He liked to give photographs and pictures to any of the fans who had been waiting long periods of time to meet him. And he said during an interview on December 6, 1980, so just a couple days prior, that people come and ask for autographs or say hi, but they don't bug you. So he's just like, he's very carefree about it. And, you know, just like, whatever. They waited. They know where I live. Like, sure. It's no, no skin off my back. Lennon and Yoko spent many hours at the recording studio before they returned to the Dakota at approximately 10.50 p.m. 
Lennon had decided against dining out so he could come home in time to say goodnight to his son before the two of them were going to just walk um, down the block to Stage Deli Restaurant. The two of them exited the limousine on 72nd Street instead of driving over to uh, the secure courtyard kind of in the back of the building. The Dakota doorman, Jose Perdomo, and a nearby taxi driver saw Chapman standing in the shadows by the archway. So Chapman's still there. As Lennon passed by, he glanced briefly at Chapman and nodded slightly, you know, having this moment of recognition from earlier. Then just Mm -hmm. seconds later, Chapman took aim at the center of Lennon's back and fired five shots from a Charter Arms thirty-eight special revolver in rapid succession at a distance from like nine or ten feet. So, five shots. Jesus. The first bullet missed, passing over Lennon's head and hitting a window of the building. The next two bullets struck Lennon on the left side of his back, and the other two penetrated his left shoulder. Lennon was bleeding profusely, and, you know, his wounds, his mouth, just blood everywhere. He staggers up the five steps to the security person, and he said, I'm shot, I'm shot. He then falls to the ground, scattering cassettes that he'd been carrying, and Perdomo ran inside and told the concierge that the attacker had dropped his gun on the sidewalk. So Chapman's still there. Like, he didn't run away. He's still there. Oh my god. Hastings first started to make a tourniquet, but upon ripping open Lennon's chest, he realized, like, the severity of the injuries and a tourniquet was not, it was not, it wasn't going to help anything. Like, you can't, you can't tie one on someone's chest and hope that it's going to help. And so he just takes his uniform jacket and he, he covered his chest and removed Lennon's glasses that were just spattered with blood and calls the police. Chapman, all the while, is still just standing there. He takes off his coat and hat in preparation for the police to arrive. He wanted to show that he didn't have any concealed weapons, that the one gun was all he had, and he'd thrown that to the ground. Um, So, is Yoko also there? Like, his wife is right next to him? Yeah, she's there. So... He's staying on the west side of 72nd Street, and he's reading J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. So we just stand there reading. What the fuck? Perdomo shouted at Chapman, do you know what you've done? To which Chapman calmly replied, yeah, I just shot John Lennon. Officers Stephen Spiro and Peter Cullen were the first two police officers who arrived at the scene, and Mm -hmm. they had been nearby when they heard the report about shots fired at the Dakota. They arrived around two minutes later and found Chapman just standing there. They immediately put him in handcuffs and placed him on the backseat of their squad car, and Chapman made no attempts to flee or resist arrest. He was just like, okay. Yeah. He wanted to get caught. He did. Well, and it's like, he knew he had done wrong, and he was just like, there's no use running, I'm just gonna wait. So, Officer Herb Fraunenberger and his partner, Tony Palma, were the second team to arrive just within the next few minutes, and they found Lennon lying face down on the floor of the reception area, blood pouring from his mouth, his clothing was soaked in blood, and there were people already attending to him. They realized the extent Mm -hmm. of his injuries, and they decided they were not going to wait for an ambulance. They threw him in the backseat of the squad car. Well, okay, probably not threw him in the- probably carefully placed him in the backseat of the squad car, and they rushed him to St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital Center. When Lennon was brought in he had no pulse and he was not breathing three doctors a nurse and two or three other medical attendants worked on him for 10 to 15 minutes in just 
a desperate attempt to resuscitate him. Yeah. As a last resort, the surgeon even cut open Lennon's chest and attempted manual heart massage to restore circulation, but he quickly discovered that all of the damage to the blood vessels above and around his heart from the multiple bullet wounds, they, they were too great. There was nothing they could do. Yeah. Three of the four bullets that struck his back passed completely through his body and out his chest, and one of the bullets hit and became lodged in his upper left arm, while the fourth lodged itself in his aorta beside his heart. Jesus. So these shots, they affected his organs, particularly his left lung and all the major blood vessels around his heart, and they were just virtually destroyed upon impact. Yeah. John Lennon was pronounced dead on arrival at Roosevelt Hospital, and he was only 40 years old. The cause of death was reported on his death certificate as hypovolemic shock caused by the loss of more than 80% of blood volume due to multiple through-and-through gunshot wounds to the left shoulder and left chest, resulting in damage to the left lung, to the left subclavian artery, the aorta, and aortic arch. So, lots of medical words to say he bled a lot. Lost almost all his blood. Yeah. According to this report, you know, even with very quick medical treatment, there was no person that could have lived for more than a few minutes with these bullet injuries. Lennon was cremated at the Ferncliff Cemetery in Hartsdale, New York on December 12th, and his ashes were given to Yoko, who chose not to have a funeral for him. She later spread his ashes in Central Park. So the world reacted in so very different ways all around the globe. Yoko asked the hospital not to report to the media that her husband was dead until she could go home and tell Sean. She was like, please do not let this get out until I can go home and tell my son that his dad's died. And, you know, she said he's probably up watching TV and she did not want him to learn of his dad's death watching TV without her there. Yeah. So, meanwhile, news producer Alan J. Weiss of WABC TV had been waiting to be treated in the Roosevelt Hospital ER after being injured in a motorcycle accident earlier that evening. And he saw Lennon being wheeled into the room surrounded by all these different police officers. He learned what happened and he called the station to relay the information. Oh. Eventually, word made its way through the chain of command to ABC News President Ronnie Arledge, who was tasked with finding a way to bring this major development to um, the viewing audience. Well, when he received, when Arledge received the word of Lennon's death, there was a game going on between the New England Patriots and the Miami Dolphins, and the game was tied with less than a minute left in the fourth quarter. The Patriots were in the process of driving towards the potential winning score of this game. So the task was given to sportscaster Howard Cosell to announce Lennon's death on ABC's Monday Night Football with 30 seconds remaining in the fourth quarter. So, you know when you're watching football and they're just doing that voiceover? He, like, goes from, like, and the Patriots are driving into the end zone and we have word that we need to announce, like, just goes right into it. And then, like, ends the game with, like, this is such a tragedy... Like, it was, like, two sentences, but that's how his death was announced to the world. Shortly after, local news stations reported his death, and crowds started to gather outside of Roosevelt Hospital and in front of the Dakota, where he lived. Yeah. His death triggered an outpouring of grief around the world to an unprecedented scale. There were even a few people who committed suicide because of his death. 
Um, people were wow. so attached to the Beatles and to him as a musician and felt, you know, if he wasn't there, they didn't want to be either. And I do believe Yoko, like, spoke out about that and was like, basically, like, please don't do that. Um, That's literally what John would not have wanted. Yeah, exactly. Um, so... I want to read this one quote. It's it's kind of long, but I think it really encapsulates the world's reaction to John Lennon's death. So Jay Cox was reported saying in Time magazine, The outpouring of grief, wonder, and shared devastation that followed Lennon's death had the same breadth and intensity as the reaction to the killing of a world figure, some bold and popular politician like John or Robert Kennedy, or a spiritual leader like Martin Luther King Jr. But Lennon was a creature of poetic political metaphor and his spiritual consciousness was directed inward as a way of nurturing and widening his creative force. That was what made the impact and the difference. The shock of his imagination and the penetrating and pervasive traces of his genius. And it was the loss of all of that in so abrupt and awful a way that was mourned last week all over the world. So it was just like, not only was he gone, but the things he was bringing to the world, his imagination, that creativity he had, was gone. Yeah. So Yoko um, sent word to the chanting crowd outside the Dakota, like they're out there singing and they'd been keeping her awake. So she asked that they reconvene in Central Park the following Sunday for 10 minutes of silent prayer. So on December 14th, 1980, millions of people around the world responded to Yoko's request to pause for 10 minutes of silence to remember Lennon. 30,000 people gathered in Lennon's hometown of Liverpool and the largest group, over 225,000, converged in Central Park, close to the scene of the shooting. And for those 10 minutes, every radio station in New York City went off the air. Shit. So that's huge. And, and like I was saying, the world's response to this was... I can't even put words behind it. And that's why I read that quote, because it just like everyone had a reaction. It was like everyone knew who the Beatles were. Even people who didn't listen to the Beatles knew who the Beatles were. Yeah. I mean, the reaction to this, the only thing I can think of that seems comparable is like the death of Princess Diana. Yes. Yeah. It was just such an outpouring that reading about it was really, really intense. Yeah. So now a little bit about Mark Chapman. He was- Yeah. Who the fuck is this guy and why the fuck? What? Yeah. So he was born in Fort Worth, Texas in 1955 and raised by a father who was. was abusive to his mother and very unloving to him. He began to fantasize about having king-like power over a group of imaginary little people who lived in the walls in his bedroom. From an early age, there's some stuff going on. By the time he was 14... He started using drugs, skipping class, and even lived on the streets of Atlanta for a couple of weeks. But in 1971, he became a born-again Presbyterian. He met his first girlfriend, Jessica Blankenship, and he began work as a summer camp counselor in the South DeKalb County, Georgia YMCA. Sorry, that was a mouthful. He he read J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye on the recommendation of a friend, and the novel eventually took on this, like, great personal significance for him to the extent that he- Why? It's not a very good book. Okay. I mean, it's, I guess, like, like, yeah, it's a good book because of, like, how important and shit it is, but it's really boring. So, to be completely honest, I've never read it. So maybe you can shed some light on the next sentence I'm going to say. Um, he just, it's all about this baseball player who, uh, instead of throwing balls, they keep throwing rye bread at him. I don't think and that's he true. And catches them, um, and they're like, aha, the rye catcher, the catcher in the rye. 
Um, and that is what the book's about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think that's the case. So Chapman reportedly wished to model his life after the book's protagonist, Holden Clawfield. Okay. So Chapman joined... Not someone I would, but okay. <laughs> so Chapman joined Blankenship as a student at Covenant College, which was an evangelical Presbyterian liberal arts college in Lookout Mountain, oh, Lookout Mountain, Georgia. And... Lookout Mountain, Georgia! However, Chapman fell behind in his studies, and he became obsessed with guilt over having an affair. So he started having, like, all these suicidal thoughts, and he began to feel like a failure. He dropped out of Covenant College after one semester, and his girlfriend broke off their relationship soon after. Mm -hmm. After he drops out of college, he goes to Hawaii, where he attempted suicide by carbon monoxide asphyxiation. He connected the hose to his car's exhaust pipe, but the hose melted, and his attempt failed. He then took a job as a night security guard and began drinking heavily. So this guy's life is just going downhill. Yeah. So he just starts developing a lot of obsessions, including artwork, The Catcher in the Rye, music, and the musician John Lennon. So in September 1980, he wrote a letter to a friend, Linda Irish, and he stated, I'm going nuts. And he signed the letter, The Catcher in the Rye. So he is just like off his rocker. He needs help. He's not seeking it. And it doesn't seem as if anyone's there to help him. So why did Chapman kill Lennon? The big question. Yeah. He'd been a fan of the Beatles, but after becoming a born-again Presbyterian, he was really incensed by Lennon's much-publicized remark about the group being more popular than Jesus. So I'm sure you've heard that quote. Lennon said, the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. And Chapman was like, oh, what the fuck? Except he wasn't like, what the fuck? Because born-again Presbyterian, he was like, I don't know what he was like, but he was... Bless his heart, not happy. Shoot he was not happy. So because the Christian thing to do after that is to murder someone, right? Because obviously that's what I know. I know. Dumb. So Jan Reeves, who was the sister of one of Chapman's best friends, reported that Chapman seemed really angry toward John Lennon, and he kept saying he could not understand why John Lennon had said that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus. And according to Mark, there should be nobody more popular than the Lord Jesus Christ. And he said it was blasphemy. I mean, I'm pretty sure, you know, if if you're a believer in Jesus and stuff, pretty sure he's not worried about, like, popularity contests, but... Yeah, I know. I don't think he is either. Okay. So Chapman was angry that Lennon would preach love and peace, but yet he had millions of dollars. So he's pissed at Lennon for being successful and being rich. And so Chapman later said, he told us to imagine no possessions. And there he was with millions of dollars in yachts and farms and country estates, laughing at people like me who would believe the lies and bought the records and build a big part of their lives around his music. So he's pissed about that. Huh. He said he also had an alternative list of potential targets in mind, including Paul McCartney, Johnny Carson, Elizabeth Taylor, George C. Scott, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, Ronald Reagan, and George Ariyoshi. His requirement was fame. There was not much more to it. Lennon was chosen because Chapman found him to be the most accessible. Chapman allegedly started planning Lennon's death three months prior to the murder, and on the day of the murder, David Bowie was appearing in Broadway in the play The Elephant Man. 
Bowie later said he was second on Chapman's list, and Chapman had front row tickets to the Elephant Man the next night. John and Yoko were supposed to sit front row at that show, too. So it's like all these things were just coming together. Like, if he hadn't have killed Lennon that night, maybe the next night he was going to be at the Elephant Man sitting there right next to, I guess not sitting next to, but where John and Yoko would be in the front row and David Bowie would be on stage. Yeah. So Chapman initially traveled to New York in October 1980, so two months before to kill Lennon, but he left, he didn't do the killing then, and came back in December. At the time of the killing, he had no prior criminal convictions and had just resigned working as a night security guard, and his wife was aware of his plans, but she did not inform the police or mental health services. Really? He had made a comment to her that, like, I'm going to go kill John Lennon. And so it's like she knew about his plans to kill John Lennon and did nothing. Like, didn't believe him, maybe. I don't know. Okay. So after the murder, Chapman's legal team intended to mount an insanity defense, and it was going to be based on the testimony of mental health experts who said he was in a delusional, psychotic state. He was more cooperative with the prosecution team, who argued that his symptoms fell short of a schizophrenia diagnosis. As the trial got closer... So, wait, he's more cooperative with the people who want to put him away than the people defending him? Yes. What the fuck? So as the trial is approaching, he instructed his lawyers that he wanted to plead guilty based on what he had decided and that this was the will of God. The judge allowed the plea change and concluded that Chapman was sane, sentencing him to a prison term of 20 years to life with a stipulation that mental health treatment would be provided. Chapman has been denied parole 10 times um, after he became eligible in 2000, and the most recent parole hearing was in 2018, which he was denied. Oh. Um, and yeah. he goes for his 11th parole hearing in August 2020. Wow. So he, again, and it's like the fact that he didn't run away after he did it, it was, he knew he had done wrong. And so he didn't even feel the need for a trial to really go on. He's like, no, I'm going to plead guilty. Like I'm, whether yeah. he was insane or not, he didn't want that insanity defense. Yeah. So there are a number of memorials and tributes to John Lennon. Annie Leibovitz's photo of naked John Lennon embracing his wife, which, like we talked about earlier, was taken on the day of his murder, was on the cover of Rolling Stone's January 22nd, 1981 issue. Most of this magazine was dedicated to articles, letters, and photographs commemorating Lennon's life and death. And In 2005, the American Society of Magazine Editors ranked it as the top magazine cover of the last 40 years. It was a big deal. In 1985, New York City dedicated an area of Central Park where Lennon had frequently walked, which was just directly across the street from the Dakota as Strawberry Fields. And as a symbolic show of unity, countries from around the world donated trees for the area of the park, and the city of Naples, Italy, donated the Imagine Mosaic centerpiece. So that beautiful circle that says Imagine, that's just there in the park, in the crossways of yeah. some of the walkways, it's it's beautiful, but that was from Naples, Italy. And hmm. on March 24th, 2018, Paul McCartney participated in the March for Our Lives, a protest against gun violence because of Lennon's killing. Mm-hmm. Wow. So wow. that is the very tragic murder of one of the co-founders of the Beatles, John Lennon. Wow. Yeah. Tell me about it. I did not know... 
literally all I knew is that he was shot. I think that's what that a was lot about of people all know. I knew. That's what a lot of people know. Like I, I didn't realize the impact and everything that his death or that his murder had. I did know that it was that it's deemed an assassination, which I always thought was interesting because assassinations are usually held for public figures in like the political sphere. Yeah, um, I think it was because like he was such an activist. Yeah, and that I don't know. Part of the motive was behind, uh, or part of the motive behind his death was how he was proclaiming like peace and not having things, but then had tons. And yeah. I mean, maybe I don't know. Well, it's interesting. So this is a sidetrack, but um, the only other time I've seen assassination used for like a singer is um, when Lady Gaga was on her Born This Way Ball tour. Um, she was performing or set to perform in Indonesia and there were tons of death threats against her. Oh my God. And like the government warning her, you probably shouldn't come. We can only provide so much protection kind of thing. Whoa. And she was tweeting about it and stuff. She was like, you know, if I perform, because she also had a ton of fans there that she wanted to perform for. Right. And it, they, you know, she was getting these death threats because she's like this powerful woman and she's very, you know, sexually, she's a very free woman. And, and it, it, so it was just these very like sexist and very uh, conservative on that end. People yeah. threatening to just murder her. And she was saying how if she goes out there, if she performs, she's going to perform alone. No dancers, no band, because she's comfortable taking her life in her hands, but not another person's. Um, And I read an article that that came out during that time that was like, are we preparing for the assassination of Lady Gaga? And it it wound up, I I think it was her label and the tour company was like, no, you're not. You're not going. We're not going to do this. So it was, those tour dates were canceled, but God. That's crazy. That, I guess when you are an artist, something, and it's for, I guess when it's, when you're murdered for these political reasons and you are that high profile of a person that, yeah, I mean, it can be considered an assassination. Yeah. Well, are you ready to jump into postmortem? Yeah, let's jump into postmortem. You start this one. Um, so I actually think I'm going to call this one. I think this is absolutely okay. a draw. Oh, thank God. Okay, because good. Because I was, I'm like, I'm sitting here, like, I don't, you can't pick either one. No, you can't. And like, both of these deaths were so, they influenced so many people and they, they impacted so many people. They were life changing for millions and millions of people across the world. Exactly. Both of them. And, and still yeah. to this day affect things like like i said well paul mccartney participating in the march of our lives last year Mm -hmm. because of gun violence and like it's still very much alive and the fact that selena is still extremely prevalent in texas and her tejano music is still top of the charts like well and one thing that's crazy about selena is um and i i should have mentioned this in um my case and i didn't but she came before the Latin Revolution with Ricky Martin and Jennifer Lopez. That's right. And Anthony. And had she lived, 
that would have happened years earlier. Absolutely. I mean, she, in her life and death, influenced and changed so much. And and I mean, so did John Lennon. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. They're two of, like, the most influential people ever. Well, and, like... Or definitely influential in- entertainers ever. Absolutely. And, like, the Beatles are still so relevant, as in, it's within the last like five years I think that their music was released on Spotify and so that introduced mm-hmm. them to a new audience that maybe had never listened before and then they had yeah. easy access I guess access was always there but easier access to yeah. the music well I remember just a few years ago when their discography was finally released to iTunes yeah and I, I remember the frenzy and every one of their albums the top 20 albums were all Beatles yeah. albums the top 20 songs the top I don't know, everything like top 30 so we're like it was, it was all the beatles because it was finally released to itunes yeah so well i think this is good i'm glad you agree with the draw because i could not make a decision on this one and uh yeah. you know this is gonna be we'll figure out what we're doing for next we're episode we're collaborating uh, oh oh that's easy yeah, okay it's then, easy yeah, we'll, we'll collaborate on, on topic and wine and hashtag team building hashtag teamwork hashtag this is how we do hashtag yes hashtag the worst Katy perry song but okay so with that i want to thank y'all so much for tuning in yes. for listening to this episode I really enjoyed researching this episode. Yeah, um, same. Definitely had my Selena Spotify station playing. And um, if y'all enjoyed it too, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts if you're listening to us on that. Or if the platform you're listening to us has the option to rate and review, uh, leave one there. Yeah, and also like and follow us on social. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, just Check it out. Also, you can subscribe on our website as well. You'll get all our, um, yeah. any new content, blog posts, etc. that we put on Do there. It. So, yeah. With that, um, right. I think, I think we're done. All right. Well, this is Blood and Wine Sending Off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye, you guys. Bitty, bitty, bum, bum. Bye. Bye.